When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Putin has been good for Russia. This debate took place on the 23rd of May 2013 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thanks to all of you for uh, coming here this evening. And what could actually be more Russian than sitting in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea to discuss Vladimir Putin? What says Russia more than that? Um, As you will know, Putin, a hugely polarising figure, some hate him, thinking of the cases of Pussy Riot and their imprisonment or... Uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Some revere him and love him. Look at those big majorities he racks up whenever there is opinion polling taken in the country. And some, uh, or rather all, would agree that whether you love him or hate him, he is of huge significance. And uh, look no further if you're, as we're seeing as we are in the Royal Geographical Society, spin the globe and land on, for example, Syria where Russia is playing a huge and uh, significant role, perhaps some of which we may even touch on this evening. So uh, a polarising figure on the world stage, but undoubtedly a hugely important one. And to discuss him and the question before us, which I'll remind you is Putin has been good for Russia, are four people who wrestle with that question, uh, some almost literally, um, uh, full-time and do that in a very expert way. I'm going to introduce them all one by one as they uh, participate in our in our debate and make their opening speeches. I'm going to just say one thing about the um, format uh, tonight. You will have already, as you know, voted on your way in uh, to give us some sense of the mood of the room, if you like, and I'll be giving the results of that indicative opening ballot Uh, after we've heard the opening speeches uh, from uh, uh, the panel up here. And then later on, after you've heard from them and after we've had a chance to debate with all of you, uh, opening the debate to the floor, you will then have one of these, which I hope you already have with you, 
Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. If you vote for, you want to tear off the little bit that says for and slip that into the ballot box. If it's against, against. Uh, and then if you still haven't made up your mind, despite the scintillating and pointed speeches up here, put the whole thing in the ballot box and that will count as an abstention. Uh, the format is a traditional uh, debate uh, where we will have two speakers for the motion, two against. They are confined to 10 to 12 minutes each, no more. If you hear me pinging the glass, it isn't uh, sheer rudeness on my part. It is a pre-agreed uh, system in which I'm reminding them to wind up. So that's how we're going to do it. Um, and let's uh, get underway with our first speaker for the motion, making the case for uh, the view that Vladimir Putin has been good for Russia. He is the managing director uh, of the independent investment research firm Trusted Sources. He's lived in Russia for many years and was a former uh, diplomat in the British Embassy in Moscow. Our first speaker for the motion, Christopher Granville. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan, for that introduction. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out in such force. Uh, to contemplate this rather hangdog portrait of uh, uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich. Uh, and the first thing I should say is that, for me, a distinct feeling of once more unto the breach, because I spoke uh, in an Intelligence Square debate on the same side of a similar motion nine years ago. And that just goes to show what a venerable and successful institution Intelligence Squared has become. Well done, them. And uh, my opponent, or one of the lead opponents uh, on that occasion, was a gentleman called Boris Abramovich Bidizovsky. Uh, and, and I don't wish to tarnish our opponents uh, this evening with that association, especially as it might boomerang against me, because if we are to believe what we are told about his uh, letter to Vladimir Putin shortly before uh, he apparently uh, committed suicide recently, uh, he wanted to apologize for the damage he'd done, and perhaps he'd be uh, on our side of the debate, which is not an association which I personally would favor. But anyway, let's move on. It's very flattering to have been invited back. Uh, repeat business is one of life's more um, reliable satisfactions, and especially, I imagine, for politicians, especially when they get repeatedly re-elected by the free vote uh, of uh, their citizens, as has been the case, of course, with the subject of our discussion this evening, Putin, Vladimir Vladimirovich, and the effects that he's had on Russia. Now, I address the battle cry once more unto the breach uh, not only uh, to myself, but also to you, dear friends. Uh, many of you I see uh, are veterans of that previous event uh, all those years ago. And I've just found out in the green room from my comrade in arms this evening, Boris Jordan, that he too was in the audience on that occasion in 2004. Welcome to the platform, Boris. Let's do battle together. Our goal on this side of the motion is to build on the gratifying success we had that time around. But I fear it won't be easy. Uh, and I don't wish to sound like one of those players coming out on the court starting to make excuses before the game has started. But uh, years have flown under the, uh, under the bridge, have flowed. Uh, stuff happens. Uh, it has this habit of happening. And just by way of comparison, imagine if we were discussing this evening uh, someone who has been in the minds of everyone in this country, Margaret Thatcher, uh, in the last years of her power. It would have been tough, much easier once time has passed and people can think back and look uh, that the medicine which she administered is distasteful, uh, whatever one thinks of her personally as well, but beneficial. 
but in the last years of her power, she fell victim to hubris uh, and the illusion of indispensability. Uh, the classic pitfalls of a successful politician, and to lay my cards out straight from the beginning, I see Vladimir Putin as quite an ordinary successful politician. Uh, but anyway, that's our problem on this side of the motion, and you rightly expect us to grapple with that problem. But I do have another worry, ladies and gentlemen, which I think uh, concerns all of us on, on either side of the debate and, and all of you. And it is that uh, we risk in this discussion this evening lapsing into a kind of scorecard exercise, uh, two parallel discussions. What, what, was the good, what has been the good stuff that's happened in Russia since Vladimir Putin came to power? And what about the bad stuff? How are we going to weight it, one against the other? And then the parallel discussion, well, here we have to introduce the C word of our debate this evening, counterfactual. Uh, the good stuff. Uh, how, did, how should Mr. Putin share the credit for the good stuff and the blame for the bad stuff, or vice versa? So either, as we are bound to argue, he deserves credit for so much of what has happened, especially the huge increase in living standards, the reduction in poverty, uh, not only in relation to the disastrous 1990s, but also to the Soviet period, and as a result of which Russian people are richer and freer than they have ever been in history. And I challenge our opponents to reject that contention, uh, including the bit and freer. And of course, we would also want to argue that for all the very ugly things that persist, uh, that the blame should not be entirely or mainly taken by Putin, uh, but should be attributed rather to the poisonous legacy of the Soviet past and also the legacy of the aftermath of the collapse uh, of 1991, when, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in the Russia question, from under the rubble and ruins of the depraved system uh, emerge such monsters and such plunder as has never been seen in history. Uh, so uh, that's, of course, our counterfactual. And uh, our esteemed opponents uh, will uh, argue, uh, well, I won't do their job for them, uh, but you get the idea, vice versa. Uh, and so, no, I've even been thinking that we should have a matrix uh, where you'd have one axis, which is good things and bad stuff, good at the top, bad at the bottom. The horizontal axis is Putin credit, Putin to blame on the right. Then the bottom left quadrant, if you get more dots in there, then we're going to win. My brain is hurting already. And I had the advantage of popping out of the office this morning to Cafe Nero for half an hour to try and think about all of this. Uh, but the trouble is that I wonder if this is going to get us very far. Ding dong, oh, for and against. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm quite happy to uh, spar in this boxing ring. Uh, the reason is because of the gothic horror consensus about Russia that comes especially from so much international media coverage allows such ample scope for factual correction and perspectives that many of you uh, might quite respectively, respectively have missed. Um, in, and I, and I, I'm saying that I include the genuine horrors. One can list them. My list is topped by Beslan. Pretty obvious, where all those children died uh, in, after the terrorist attack in North Ossetia, the Nordos Theatre, uh, the murder uh, to come closer to London of Alexander Litvinenko, the death in pre-trial detention of Sergei Magnitsky. Uh, now, uh, I, uh, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, the feisty girls who went to prison for their song, and I don't think they. I think it's an insult to those other victims to even have them in the same company. But there we are; uh, they've been mentioned. 
Uh, my benchmark would be, uh, as Dmitry Medvedev said, that their pre-trial pre detention was quite enough punishment. My benchmark being Otis Ferry being banged up here for four months for raiding the House of Commons, as, as you may recall. Anyway, uh, but the... Uh, Let's, uh, let's just, if we want to spar in this boxing ring, so we can all start the good stuff I mentioned already, uh, now our opponents will surely say it's all due to the oil price, and but for Putin, that oil uh, um, windfall would have been used better for the good of the people and there would have been less corruption. Well, that's a claim which may sound plausible to some of you, especially if you are slightly predisposed to regard the gentleman with distaste. Uh, but, you know, let's look at some facts and some decisions which Putin has taken of his own discretion uh, in response to this manner, not down from heaven, but up from the subsoil of Western Siberia. Well, uh, one can mention, first and foremost, I think, the decision not to fritter it away, to set up the oil stabilization fund, which meant that when an external shock came, which it must be, given the nature of this economy, which is not his fault or anyone else's fault, uh, the people were sheltered. And unlike in 1998, when there was a 30% cut in living standards for the whole country, after that shock in 2008, uh, the population were largely uh, protected, as were real incomes. Now, uh, counterfactual. Let's look for one. Ah, I thought of one, Gordon Brown. Uh, did he wisely and judiciously save all that tax revenue from our oil sector here in the UK, which is the financial services sector, to help us in the downturn? Oh, nope, we didn't. <laughs> Spent it all. And he, uh, uh, he, then went, um, he then went, of course, we have GDP in UK just now recovering to where it used to be in 2007, whereas Russia two years ago. Demography, Putin has used the money for uh, supporting the birth rate uh, and uh, for mothers having babies. Pensions. Pensioners must not live in poverty. Raise the pension above the subsistence level. So we could go on and on. But in my last couple of minutes, which, Jonathan, you signaled to me, I want to do something more ambitious. I may burn up in the process, but here goes. Uh, getting out of the ding-dong, what should I think is really counts is, has the price of this stability, which has allowed growth, been too high? Is the country moving forward? Is it stagnant? Uh, stability, which is so important. Stability is important, but is it stagnant or is it dynamic? For, for the Russian history buffs among you, is it Alexander III or Brezhnev? Well, I say it's dynamic because the, we are not in a Soviet dead end. Uh, we can see that a middle class has formed. Vladimir Putin himself said, when asked about the protesters in Moscow last year, what do you think? He said, when I look at these people, I think of the, and, and I'm told that this is the result of the Putin regime, and he used those words ironically, then I am proud. That is the way forward. Uh, living standards and a middle class must come first. Then you can have political competition and more of accountability and less uh, corruption. Uh, this is not a dead end in the Soviet Union. What we see in Putin's Russia, even in the present relatively late uh, period of entropy, is that there is a path forward. And it's that point which I would hope uh, would be your basis for voting in favour of the motion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just one, a, a very quick follow-up. You said he was struck you as an ordinary successful politician. And I'm just thinking, I was trying hard to think of one an example of an ordinary successful politician who had been president for eight years, 
stepped back and was prime minister for four years, then came back as president after that. It doesn't seem that ordinary to me. From one job to another job and then back again into the... Into the top job, out again and back in again. Okay, well, I, don't, I think this will be a first, that parallel, to have been drawn between uh, Vladimir Putin and Stanley Gordon. <laughs> but um, terrific, thank you. And there'll be more, more, we'll hear more from Christopher Granville later on. Our next speaker, uh, against the motion, uh, against the motion that Putin has been good for Russia, is a Russian journalist based in Moscow, the author of The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. She was sacked as editor of a nature magazine for refusing to cover... President Putin's hang glider flight with Siberian cranes. She's the former director of Radio Liberty's Russian service, working on two books currently, one on uh, Pussy Ride, another one on the Boston bombing. Uh, our next speaker, against the motion, Marsha Gessen. Thank you. Thank you. I should say it's especially gratifying to be at the Royal Geographic Society after losing my job to the Russian Geographic Society, which is chaired by Vladimir Putin. So it gave me particular pleasure to check in on Facebook. Um, so um, responding to my opponent, uh, well, certainly if you, if you see that you can't win a debate, you try to reframe it, and I appreciate the effort. But um, I would like <laughs> to go to the points. Um, there, there's the myth of Putin bringing uh, order to the chaos that Russia was in the 1990s. And that is the myth that needs to be debunked first. Um, violent crime, which had been on the rise throughout the 1990s, started falling in late 1998 and continued a steep fall until 2001. Uh, the same happened with the economy, the economy which had been in turmoil uh, and uh, had hit the financial crisis of 1998, had started growing in late 1998 and continued growing steeply, uh, regardless of Putin's coming to power. Uh, the same was happening throughout the country. Uh, the post office was working again, the trains were running on time again. That sense of um, order replacing chaos is something that we often see in public opinion, where public opinion trails behind events. Uh, and so, and where we see uh, a new leader coming in to capitalize on the gains of a previous leadership, which is exactly what happened in Russia. In 1998, at the height of the financial crisis in Russia, the price of a barrel of, oil, of Russian oil was $8. Uh, the cost of getting it out of the ground was $12. Uh, that price started growing and was growing steadily for most of Putin's reign. And that is the beginning and end of the story. Now, let's look at what Putin did with, that, um, uh, uh, with the oil riches. Um, now, uh, while uh, my opponent is correct in saying that there was the stabilization fund, uh, most of which has been used up, um, there is also the issue of paying off foreign debt early instead of reinvesting the money in the economy. In fact, reinvestment in the economy ground to a halt under Putin. And this is what we're seeing now. We're seeing the economy entirely dependent on uh, oil and gas reserves, uh, while the cost of getting those reserves out of the ground is rising steadily because of the lack of reinvestment, especially in, in, in anything in the economy, including um, the, uh, the natural resources industry. 
but in addition to that, look at the um, look at the social sector. Look at education. Uh, starting next year, Russian parents are going to have to, uh, with children going to state-owned schools, are going to be uh, to have to pay for so-called um, optional subjects, which is anything that reaches beyond a couple of hours of Russian and math each, uh, and two hours of physical education a week. Uh, if you uh, need to get a medical test uh, at a clinic in Moscow, you don't even have to go far afield. You have to bring your own syringe. In 2013, um, and where has much of that, this money been going, aside from being uh, stolen by corrupt officials, which most of it has been? Um, but a lot of a lot of it has been going to quiet and quell protest. And now that the economy has slowed to to, to a virtual standstill, that money is running out, and that's where, why we're going to see. Whatever protests we're going to see once the economy slows completely um, is not going to be quieted by the money, uh, quelled by the money, and I think is going to be quite violent and quite catastrophic. Um, now, uh, let's talk about the popularity myth. Uh, there's there's several myths in the popularity myth. Uh, there's the myth of uh, of public opinion polls. Well, uh, public opinion polls are rather problematic in Russia. Uh, the single uh, independent uh, pub uh, public opinion polling organization was uh, taken over by the state, what was it, I think, 2005. Uh, this was one, which was headed by Yuri Levada, was, was taken over by the state. Um, the sociologists struck out on their own, formed a non-governmental organization, which has uh, functioned with great difficulty, but has functioned. It has now been become one of the NGOs that has been that have been raided, uh, and are facing the very real uh, prospect of closure. Uh, but also, let's let's look at the numbers that are available to us. Let's look at uh, Putin's claim that he got sixty three percent in the uh, presidential election on March fourth of last year. Uh, well, there are a couple of independent exit polls to look at that show. Uh, that he got about 50%. That might sound like a lot, um, but think about the fact that he was running virtually unopposed. Uh, there were four other names on the ballot. All of those names were put there with the, uh, with the full cooperation and permission of the Kremlin, and none of those people campaigned. So nobody who voted uh, for one of those four other candidates actually was voting to see somebody in office. That was a 50% protest vote. That is extremely high. Um, it is extremely high even if you don't consider the fact that Putin has a monopoly on the media. But for the last 12 years, the Kremlin has controlled all of uh, the state television stations and most other media, including print media. The um, independent media are limited to um, a few newspapers and magazines, one magazine that are published in Moscow and don't really get distributed outside of Moscow. And the internet, which, uh, while relatively free, although it faces DDoS attacks every time there's something uh, important is going on, uh, has the very different aspect of, uh, you know, you don't get answers to questions you don't ask on the internet. Uh, then uh, having unfettered access to social networks is not at all the same as having um, access to television. Um, and again, there's no such thing as, as political campaigning. There's no such thing, in fact, as public space. Um, 
which is uh, where we get to my opponent's claim that uh, that only after you see the living standards rise do you get do you see political competition. But before we get to the point about uh, whether we have seen living standards rise under Putin's reign, um, I would like to return to the 1990s again. Uh, the 1990s, contrary to popular belief, did see the living standards rise. Uh, by, uh, between 1991 and 1996, every Russian household acquired a new television set. Between 1991 and 1996, every Russian household acquired a new washing machine. Think about it. Think about what a huge difference it makes to go from having a, um, a semi-manual washing machine, which any of those who visited uh, Soviet bloc countries in the 1980s should be familiar with, um, and a fully automatic washing machine. Think about the difference it makes when, um, when you acquire a new television set and you see, uh, and you did see at the time, Uh, independent media, some of the best television made in the, uh, in the, in the world was being made uh, in Russia in the 1990s. Uh, that, uh, the Putin administration has been extremely successful in propagating, uh, propagating the myth of the wild and unruly and horrible and scary 1990s. Things, there were things that were wild and unruly and horrible and scary. But it was a system that was in the process of writing itself. And that was very, very clear by the end of the 1990s. And of course, one example of that um, is uh, a man that surely all of you have heard of, and that's Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Uh, his trajectory is, is very typical. Uh, he's somebody who took what he could take without any moral qualms uh, in the mid-1990s, who had an incredible change of heart in 1998 during the financial crisis. By this time, he owned the uh, the largest and catastrophically unprofitable oil company uh, in Russia, Yukos, uh, and as a result of the financial crash of 1998, lost the ability to pay his workers, went out to see them, and suddenly realized for the first time in his life, and the first, I think, among many Russian entrepreneurs, that uh, business had a responsibility uh, in addition to making money. Uh, he'd, uh, a little bit earlier than that, he and other Russian oligarchs began to realize that if you kept taking money and assets out of your companies, you would eventually run out of money and assets. Uh, this is something that uh, Putin and his cronies has sti have still not realized about Russia, that if you t keep taking money and assets out of Russia, you will eventually run out of money and assets. Uh, so he, unlike Putin, began reinvesting. Uh, and he, uh, unlike uh, Putin or any of his cronies, began... Um, a campaign, a concerted campaign for transparent and good corporate governance. Um, so he was quite successful in that. He was quite successful in creating the first Russian company uh, that uh, was in many ways uh, living up to international standards of corporate governors by around 2000, the year 2003, which is exactly when his anti-corruption campaign finally landed him in prison where, as you know, he has been for the last nine years, and I believe will be as long as uh, Vladimir Putin is in power, uh, which goes to show just how terrified the Putin regime is of someone who is no longer the richest man in the world or even one of the richest men in Russia, um, but simply has the kind of moral standing and, and credibility um, that one can only get after uh, spending nine years Uh, in prison, uh, stalwart in, in, in his moral position. So um, getting back to the issue, 
of whether uh, you can have, uh, uh, whether, uh, whether you need a rise in living standard in order to have political competition. That sounds great. It even sounds right. The only problem is it has absolutely nothing to do with Russia as it is constituted today. Uh, Russia has seen a rise in living standards through the 90s and certainly through the, uh, through the knots and um, in 2010s although that rise in living standard has certainly slowed and is handicapped hugely by an enormous income gap, which, is, which continues to grow, and incredible capital flight. Uh, but Russia has no political competition. In fact, what little public space was not destroyed in the first dozen years of Putinism has been destroyed in the last year. And what we're seeing right now in Russia is, uh, is the final stage of the destruction of public space. We're seeing the closure uh, of, of the last of the independent media. Uh, we're seeing uh, protest leaders uh, facing um, uh, prison. Alexei Navalny, I think, will go to jail in the next few weeks. Uh, and um, we will see, uh, I think, 28 people get jail time this summer between six and eight years each uh, for participating in a legal and peaceful protest a year ago. That is not political competition. That is tyranny. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Be before we hear from our third speaker, I just want to follow up there. Central to Christopher Granville's case was this idea that the country was richer and freer. And we heard what you said about freedom in the country. But, but am I right in thinking you're not attempting to deny that the country, the, the alleviation of poverty that Christopher Granville spoke about, that that has happened under Putin? Uh, well, that's actually tricky because uh, the, the, um, the country is certainly richer but the income gap has also grown significantly. So alleviation of poverty is a bit of a, a difficult claim to make. Uh, about a third of the country continues to live below the poverty, the poverty level. For, for those other two thirds, a right, an increase in living standards. Two thirds, absolutely. So you're conceding on that point because it was central to Christopher Gamble's case. Let's go on to our third uh, speaker. He is an American businessman of Russian origin, both his uh, parents but also his grandparents were Russian. He is now based in Moscow. He's the president and CEO of the wonderfully named Sputnik Group and the author of the article, He Delivers. That's why they like him in the Washington Post, which may end up being a seven-word summary of the argument we get now from Boris Jordan. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am going to try to dispense a little bit with, um, with a lot of the entry formalities because of all that was just said, I really want to answer some of that, but most of which I'll answer in my formal uh, uh, debate. Um, I'd like to put everyone in this room where I was, at least, which I think where Masha was too, because she was in Russia in, in, in 1994. I moved to Russia in 1992, having only learned about Russia through books, imagining myself riding through the snow in the Russian uh, fields uh, on a troika, and imagining when I arrive, uh, Russian bells ringing uh, and beautiful churches. And when I got off the airplane in, in 1992, it was anything but that. It was very gray, very different. Uh, the people did speak Russian, uh, but they didn't speak the Russian I learned uh, uh, back in the United States as a, as a, uh, a, a um, descendant of, uh, from, of, of Russian white emigres. And, and, and when I want to put you, I'd like to put you into 1998 and 1999. 
Um, and Russia, unlike what Masha says, was a very, very dark place. Poverty was at over 40%. Inflation was at over 30%. Um, the country's debt to GDP was over 110%. The ruble was not convertible, and nobody wanted to use it. Masha says that there was, there was an improvement in standard of living in the 90s. I can tell you there was virtually no improvement in standard of living in the 1990s. As a matter of fact, almost all Russians, except a very, very few, lived worse in the 1990s than they did in the 1970s and 80s. And hyperinflation destroyed the value of their savings that they had in the Russian uh, uh, government bank. It, it intercompany debt, which is a level where people were bargaining um, with bottles of vodka uh, in order to be able to feed their families. Um, the regents were not paying any taxes to the federal government. As a matter of fact, the Urals, one of the largest regions of Russia, decided to form the independent republic of Urals and, and move, move away from the Russian Federation. Tatarstan uh, uh, and many other regions were looking at walking away from the Federation in 1998 as the Russian government defaulted on its international obligations. So I don't see anything remotely what Masha sees. I can tell you now the country was a disaster. Um, the electoral rating of, of President Yeltsin was at a level of 3%. Um, the country was run by oligarchs. And when I traveled internationally to raise money for Russian companies, and we were the biggest bank in Russia raising money for Russian companies at that time, everybody's questions to me were as follows. You know, this country is not run by a democratically elected government. It is run by an oligarchy, a group of eight or nine people that decide everything. And those eight or nine people, by the way, controlled the so-called independent media. And it was anything but independent. That media all of the major TV stations, including the so-called independent NTV, and I know a little bit about NTV because I ran it later on, were all buying media to, for, to push their own goals forward. They were not independent. They were dependent on the money that, that their specific um, uh, um, uh, uh, owners uh, were giving them in order to project a political image or a, or a business interest of theirs within the country. It was not objective in any stretch of the imagination. There was enormous global concern about whether or not Russia would even stay together as a nation. And there was huge issues globally and talk about potential problems in nuclear proliferation. That is the Russia that I remember when young President Vladimir Putin, well, young Prime Minister Putin, was elected as president of the country. That was what I remember, and I was there, and I was working there at the time. Now, I'm a business person. I'm not a politician. And I like to look at things like a CEO looks at things. And I have a board of directors, and I have shareholders in the companies that I own. And they come to me, and they say annually, they say, we're going to have a report card for what you do. It's called an annual report. And on that basis, your company shares trade, or, or how we pay you is determined. So let's have a little bit of a report card on how Mr. Putin has done in terms of his running the country from 1999 as the start as prime minister and as president in 2000. Well, I'd like to start with what Christopher Granville said. The poverty level in Russia was 40% of the population, World Bank statistic, lived at poverty levels. Today, 
it is 11%. It is better than the United States of America by 1%. That is a factual World Bank statistic, not made up by me, but by the World Bank. So that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happened in the, in the last 12 years since we've had Mr. Putin. And all of those Russians have left poverty and have gone into what we call the middle class. Personal income. In 1999, the average Russian was making 40 to, the equivalent of $40 to $50. Today, on an inflation-adjusted basis, his, their pay is up 2.6%, 2.6 times, sorry, 2.6 times to $400 to $450. The standard of living in a poll recently run, 43% of Russians believe that the standard of living of their families has improved. 20% believe it has worsened. Unemployment in 1999 was at 15%. Today, it is at 5%. Inflation was at 36%. Today, it is at 6.6%. The middle class was at 11% in 99. Today, 48% would be considered middle class. The gross domestic product has grown in that same period by two times on an average of 5% annually, exceeding Brazil, which grew at 1.5% during that period of time, India at 2.4% at that time, China at 3.5%, and the United States, the great United States, at 1.2%. I'm an American, by the way. Um, gross domestic capital per, per, per capita, gross domestic product per capita, is the highest of all the BRIC countries. And in 2012, reached $14,000 compared to Brazil's 11.3, India's 1,500, China's 6,000. Growth of 10 times from 1,330 in 1999 to where we are today. Incredible statistics. Debt to GDP, one of Russia's biggest problems. Masha said they used the stabilization fund to pay down debt. Don't forget that in 1998, Russia was crushed by that debt that it had, and it had defaulted on the debt. And by the way, it is the reason the G7 today is collapsing economically, because of the masses amounts of debt. The United States running at over 100% of GDP now. Russia went from 110% to 12% today. And that, excuse me, is I think was exactly the way you had to spend the money. Foreign exchange reserves, the so-called money that were squandered, are now at a half a trillion dollars. And when Masha said that the, the stabilization fund was used, it was actually used for stabilization during the 2008 crisis. It was used to stabilize the Russian ruble so it didn't collapse and it didn't cause the same kind of effect that we had in 1991 when hyperinflation fell set in and Russia, the Soviet Union collapsed. So it actually was used for exactly what it was set out to be used for. 
tax reform. There isn't a country, not a country I go to, that doesn't say we would love to have the Russian tax system. Putin took a tax system which was incomprehensible, and he lowered the, your tax rate, the individual's tax rate, at 13% flat tax, and increased tax receipts by fivefold, because everyone started to pay. It was transparent and understandable. He took the corporate tax rate from 35, 33%, which is the same as the United States right now, and he dropped it down to 20% today and increased tax receipts. He also then moved the tax burden away from the individual and put it on the natural resource sector, thereby freeing up people to save and to invest in their economy. Um, banking reform was enormous. We, with, through banking reform, we created transparency, international accounting standards, and what did that do? It created a huge boost in confidence in the ruble. Today, the ruble is used by 90%. The dollar virtually is not in circulation in Russia as a currency. And it's internationally convertible. Nobody thought that would ever happen. Today, you can go to a London kiosk and convert your rubles to dollars, your rubles to pounds. That could never have been done or even thought of in 19, before he came to power. Mortgages are up to 9%. I can keep going and going. But I'd like to cover one or two more things that were said. The whole issue of the independent um, uh, um, independent polling agencies. Well, let me tell you, that there was an article two days ago in The Guardian that Masha, I think, was referring to that said that only the Levada Center is independent, and they polled that, and the reason they're independent is they claim that 26% of the population supports Putin versus the other two that claimed it was 52%. Well, actually, The Guardian got it wrong because it was 63% by Levada's poll that said, even more than the other two that said Putin's popularity was a level 63%, and 26% was actually the index, the difference between those in favor and those who felt that it wasn't. And, and a letter is going out to The Guardian today from, I understand, one of the polling agencies to correct them in that. So actually, Levada, the so-called independent polling agency, said that Putin's popularity is a level of 63%, unlike the other ones at 52%. And if we talk about Mr. Hodorkovsky, as, as the guardian of democracy. I mean, that's just laughable. I mean, I know this guy. He was ruthless. There are 10, 12 body bags behind that organization of people that were disappeared because of the way they ran their business. And in most civilized countries, he'd be in jail for life. And in some uncivilized countries, one that I come from, he'd be in an electric chair. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. Um, obviously, I remind you there will be time for contributions, reactions, questions from all of you. And I'm sure there's lots there in what you've just heard that you'll want to respond to. Um, Boris Jordan closed with a uh, critique, let's put it that way, of the Guardian newspaper, which could almost be a cue for our fourth speaker, who is the senior international correspondent for the Guardian newspaper, and the first Western journalist to be expelled from Moscow since the Cold War. He is the author of a book called Mafia State, How One Journalist Became an Enemy of the Brutal New Russia. The one journalist of that title is Luke Harding. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, it's been fascinating sitting here, uh, listening to Boris and Christopher painting a sort of portrait of a Russia, which I'm afraid I simply don't 
recognize. Um, and perhaps I can just talk about my own personal experiences, which I think are kind of emblematic of, of where we're at. Um, I arrived in Russia with my wife and two other small children in January 2007 as The Guardian's Moscow correspondent. I think I was the eighth since the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, uh, going back to, to Malcolm Muggeridge and before him Arthur Ransom, who was, who was number one. Um, and pretty quickly, I found uh, myself sort of plunged into what you can only describe as a kind of very badly written spy novel. Uh, I mean, think kind of Skyfall and, and Daniel Craig, but much, much worse than that with kind of rubbish dialogue, poor characterization, repetitive staging, this kind of thing. Uh, and what, what happened in my case was um, the first four months were pretty uneventful. Uh, and then two of my Guardian colleagues from, from, from Boris's favorite newspaper um, interviewed Boris Berezovsky uh, in, in, in London, who the late Boris Berezovsky, as, as we all know, is a kind of someone who was self-promoting, uh, self-aggrandizing figure. And he told them that he was doing nothing less than plotting uh, a revolution against Vladimir Putin. And so The Guardian, in, in the way that kind of newspapers sometimes do when they're excited, put the story on the front page the next day, April 2007. I am plotting Russian revolution, says Berezovsky. Uh, and my misfortune was that I was asked to get a quote from Dmitry Peskov, who was Putin's press spokesman at the time, uh, which he gave me. And then I was the third byline, Luke Harding in Moscow, on the front page. And, and, and really, after that, I would say the kind of sky fell on my head in, in, in the, the, the Putin's Russia, which the others talk about. What, what happened in my case, and this has happened to many other human rights activists, opposition people, journalists, Russian journalists in, in particular, was that I had, for example, I had physical surveillance. So I suddenly had unpromising young men in, in cheap leather jackets and brown shoes who would kind of follow me around whenever I'd go to a cafe or a restaurant, and they would kind of, if Masha is me, they would sort of come and... <laughs> and they, they would kind of dump a bag, I think containing some kind of recording device, um, next to me. And this was quite funny. This was kind of more Inspector Clouseau than KGB. But no, nonetheless, it went on. So that was physical surveillance. Then there was electronic surveillance, which happens to, I think, most journalists in, in Moscow, certainly Western journalists. Uh, but um, it was quite ridiculous. So my, my mobile phone here was, was, was bugged. Someone hacked into my email account. Uh, and in our rather dingy office next to Belaruskaya Station uh, in, in, in Moscow, the, the, the landline was bugged as well. And the reason I knew this was because whenever I said something, I, I would make a joke about Putin or, or say the word Berezovsky or Litvinenko or some kind of humorous aside, and then there would be <laughs> like this. So then you carry on, and then you make another joke about Putin. <laughs> you know, and at first I thought, I thought, you know, this is automated software. And then gradually I concluded there was someone sitting in a FSB listening station somewhere on the outskirts of Moscow with a copy of probably a Russian tabloid, their feet up, the headphones on, like in The Life of Others, that wonderful film about Stasi. Uh, and so I tried a small experiment. Instead of saying Berezovsky, I tried the word uh, banana. And this worked. Amazingly, I had a conversation for five minutes, uninterrupted. This, I'd managed to outwit, you know, by, by using this, this secret code. Um, so, so there was that. Uh, and then another, I think, emblem of this, this dysfunctional Putin state uh, was 
that the FSB, the successor agency to the KGB, which, which Putin headed uh, until he became prime minister and president in 1999, they, they broke into the kind of family flat uh, where I was living with my wife and kids. They, they didn't steal anything. It wasn't like a conventional burglary where someone takes your TV and some money and jewelry or whatever. They, they, it was demonstrative to show that they'd been there. So I came back with my small son to discover that the locked window of his bedroom, we lived on the 10th floor, and there was a 20-meter drop to the courtyard below, which we always kept locked, was open, with a kind of symbolism that maybe he might just meet with a little accident and fall out. There were alarm clocks that went off in the middle of our night, uh, the night, which we never found, 4 o'clock, 4.30, 5 o'clock, 5.30. Uh, I had a, my family on the laptop, a photo, it was deleted one day. I came into my office and the phone was off the hook. And, and th these kind of harassment techniques are wheeled out by the Kremlin against critics, against people seen as internal enemies. Um, and th they, th there is a humorous element to this too. On one occasion, I came back to my flat uh, and discovered a strange book in Russian uh, about love and uh, relationships. And it had been bookmarked. The FSB had kindly bookmarked it for me, and I, I, to page 110. So I, I turned to page 110, and it's a page about orgasms and how to have a better sex life. And I'm sitting there, it was one of the most surreal moments of my life, looking at this present from the KGB FSB, thinking, you know, am I doing it wrong? Is it a, <laughs> is it, is it a technical issue, perhaps a frequency, a, a frequency thing? Um, and it was, kind of, it was kind of funny, and we showed this thing off at dinner parties, but at the same time, it wasn't funny because, you know, we had no, we had no private space for, for, for four years. Um, and we, we discovered what we knew from the British Embassy at the time that suffered similar break-ins. It's, it's done against Western diplomats all the time and others, that w there, were, there were bugs, uh, audio, video in the bedroom, the bathroom, kind of everywhere. So, so our entire privacy was invaded by, by this thuggish organization. And that was the private stuff. Additionally, we had the public stuff. I, was, uh, I got a call one day from the FSB um, in, in, in Moscow saying that they wanted to interview me. Uh, and I said, look, I don't really want to be interviewed. They said, you have no choice. So I reported uh, about a week later with my lawyer to Lofortovo, which is the kind of notorious KGB jail in Moscow, not marked on any map, but it does exist. It's a sort of pre-detention center. And I turned up with my lawyer and we went inside uh, and there was a kind of waiting room, I'd say about half the size of the stage, but there were no kind of tables and chairs there. And so, so the sort of psychological games were beginning. Uh, but there was an oblong kind of mirror on the right-hand side, demanding my, someone demanded my passport and mobile phone. And all I saw of the spy on the other side of the one-way mirror was a hand. And I noticed the hand was rather hairy, kind of hairy hand. So the hairy hand took my phone. And then we proceeded upstairs through this kind of etiolated corridor, very much like the sort of Stasi headquarters. Uh, to, to be interrogated. And one thing I remember is that in the, the, the top of the ceiling, there were these old-style KGB cameras which sort of followed us around as we trooped up, going... <laughs> like this, got to room 305, where a, a Major Kuzmin was waiting for us. That, that was almost certainly his nom de plume. But asking me about this kind of Berezovsky story and, and so on and so on. And it, it, was, a, it was a pretty banal uh, encounter. But the one thing I recall from it was that on the table of his desk, this is the FSB major, was a glass. And on the glass were four initials. And those initials were Cheka, Ogpu, KGB, FSB. 
In, 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 in other words, basically the, FS, FSB, the, the FSB, Putin's domestic security organization, sees itself, despite the end of the Cold War, uh, despite the demise of communism, as being in a kind of direct line from the Cheka, uh, Lenin's you know, first secret police, performing the same function, which is to kind of identify enemies of the state, of whom I think provisionally I, I, I was one at that stage, and to smite them, basically, to, to um, destroy them. Um, and just to wrap up my, my personal story, um, this harassment went on and off basically for about four years. Then in the autumn of 2010, I uh, was sitting in our office reading Izvestia, which is a kind of rampantly pro-Kremlin newspaper, but it had an interesting article about someone called Julian Assange, the, the, the floppy-haired, you know, founder of WikiLeaks, who was promising to open up a kind of box of secrets about the post-Soviet Union. Um, and so um, I flew back to London, and it turned out that we, we actually had all these secrets, about a quarter of a million sort of diplomatic cables, confidential and secret diplomatic cables, written by US embassies and consulates around the world and sent back to Washington. Um, and I read, them, read these cables on Russia, and they were fascinating. And uh, I have to say that they basically confirmed the kind of stories that I'd been writing for a long time. Certainly, American diplomats see, see Russia very differently from the way Boris sees it, and indeed from Christopher. They, they talk about a mafia state. They paint a picture of... Of, of a kleptocracy, of, of a dysfunctional regime where organized crime, uh, where the government uh, um, and where the FSB have kind of merged into a kind of single, a single entity. Um, and I mean, just to wrap up, I, I'd just like to say, I mean, you know, Boris's statistics are, are lovely, but I mean, if, if, if this is all true, I, I wonder how he explains why so many rich Russians come and live in London buy property here, flee here when they kind of fall out. Um, and I think there's an absolute lack of faith, really, among Russians who support the regime and Russians who oppose the regime uh, and what's going on at the moment. And I think what is happening, which uh, sort of our two opponents kind of skate over, is this political repression, which is really intensified. I mean, you can make a case for early Putin, perhaps up to 2003. You can make a case for his macroeconomic reforms, for lowering the tax rate, for stabilizing Russian finances. But this is not because Putin is some kind of fiscal magician. It's because he's just, historically, he got lucky. Um, he got lucky with the oil price going up. But what, what we've seen, the middle Putin, when I was there, and I would say the kind of Putin now, is, um, is a kind of really, I think, a kind of despot who, who is retreating further and further away from reality and is, is doing what Hillary Clinton described as kind of re-Sovietization. In other words, bringing about the motifs of the, of the Soviet Union, the, the, the goons who used to come into our flat. I mean, he's, he's operating from a playbook as if it were 1983 rather than kind of 2013. And really, it's, a kind of, it's dismaying what's happening now. Um, and I, I'm afraid I do not see uh, Putin as Stanley Baldwin uh, it's, it's a nice comparison, nor do I see him as Gordon Brown. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the, best, the, the best analogy is Brezhnev. Really, what's happening in Russia now is, is frustration, uh, it's, it's repression, it's, it's emigration. A lot of the best, the brightest Russians are leaving or being forced to leave. And I think it's a kind of dismal picture. And I, I don't think one needs to be sophistical about this. I don't think one needs to be determinist. I think you to, need to use your common sense um, and vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>
thank you. You've heard now from all four of our speakers. Before you had had that chance to hear from them, you did vote as you came in, uh, either for, against, or for or against the motion or as a don't know. Let me give you the results of that. Remember, that was before you had been swayed and persuaded by the Ciceronian rhetoric that has been unleashed from up here. But the, the state of play before them was those who were for the motion, those who agreed or believed that Putin was good for Russia, amounted to 21% of the room. Those who were against, who did not believe that Putin has been good for Russia, counted as 40%. And the don't knows, a very large body of 39%, called yourself don't know, 39%. So that is the group of people who are up for grabs, swing voters, floating voters, however you'd uh, like to describe them. So uh, I say to the four speakers up here, those are the people uh, you have to win over this evening. You've done it perhaps already with your opening speeches, but now uh, we're going to open up and widen uh, the debate. So the way I'd like to do it is to, to see some hands go up, and I'm going to take two or three uh, in, a, uh, in a group. There are people with microphones. So let's go get the microphone here to the lady here. Um, and then you can, when you finish, you can pass it just straight along because there's another person there. And then we'll take the gentleman there. So we'll have the microphone ready. So we're going to start with you. I'm, I'm going to do my generalised plea here. Uh, we've heard four very good speeches. We don't really want to hear any more speeches. <laughs> what we want to hear are short, pointed questions and contributions, and I will make them short and pointed if you don't do so already. Not so off we worry, go. Not to worry, not to worry. Mine is a question to Boris and Christopher. What happens next? One remarkable thing about Putin is that he's not laid out the future at all for his country. There's a complete lack of institutions and... You know, it's not exactly a meritocracy. So if you think he's been good for Russia, how is he building a good future for Russia? Thank you. And I'll make sure we hear an answer to that. And just pass it straight along. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your contributions. Um, I, you've all spoken a lot about the domestic Putin. Um, for me, there's a striking gap in this debate, as John Kerry recently said. Gone are the days when you can really separate between domestic and foreign. And I'd like to know what the panel thinks about what Putin has done for Russia's international standing as well. Thank you. For his international standing. And I'll, I'll repeat the questions as well. For people in the audience who haven't uh, completely heard them, clearly I'll be summarising and repeating. Gentlemen there. Uh, well, none of the speakers mentioned, of course, uh, I'm surprised the opposition didn't mention, the uh, bombs in Moscow and Volgodonsk in September 1999, which killed uh, 200 people. And it's important to mention this, that, of course, uh, two weeks later, of course, um, people, some security servicemen were discovered planting a bomb in an apartment block in Ryazan, which was explained away as a training exercise. Uh, and then they said it was like a, a bags of sugar or something uh, in the, if they found in the basements. So it's extremely... Uh, well, the point is, obviously, many people think that the bombs were planted by the FSB and not by uh, Chechens, which is what the Russian authorities said at the time. And, of course, the point is that Peter uses this excuse to um, send the troops into Chechenia. OK, there's a lot there. I'm going to take more later on, so don't you worry. No, you don't have to keep your hands up just now because I'm going to get some responses and then we'll take another round. And we've got, we've got a good chunk of time. So um, let's uh, hear from you first, Christopher, on that very first question. Uh, if Putin has been so good, uh, how, what, what future plans has he made? I don't, I don't think the questioner means in terms of succession strategy, um, but in terms of the, the, a future plan for the country. <laughs> 
Well, I think that uh, there is a succession strategy, which is obviously to replicate his ruling establishment by uh, repeating uh, the operation that was successfully done in much uh, more difficult circumstances in 1999, when the embattled and discredited Yeltsin administration, having farcically cast around for various successes at a very late stage, alighted on the unknown Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, and as someone who could command the support of the public, and they were right. So I think that the plan is probably to try to replicate that operation. But I think, Natasha, your question was a deeper one. Uh, and uh, I would make two comments. First, that uh, the, unlike China, where the political future is so completely imponderable, probably the biggest question for our world today, in Russia, the institutions are in place. Uh, the, and like a, a vessel into which some liquid has been poured, more could easily be poured. You don't have to actually to invent anything. Uh, there is the separation of powers. Uh, and as the political culture matures, the one institution which makes sense to people in this culture, which is the elected president, this is a plebiscital, um, a plebiscital uh, mild authoritarian system, uh, will gradually, uh, gradually improve, will gradually mature. And, and my second comment would be this, that Putin continually says we need to develop a political competition without going off the rails, without going back into the abyss, led there by uh, adventurers and dreamers and fanatics, as in 1917. Now, uh, and then he also says, we must generate our own democracy from within. That's his program. Now, of course, those are self-serving arguments because they kind of support his maintenance in power. But hey, that doesn't mean to say they're not true. Okay. They are true. Luke Harding, quick response. The separation of powers, the yes, building blocks are in place for a future democracy. Well, I, 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 it's nonsense, and I think Christopher knows as much, uh, unfortunately. Um, uh, succession policy, there, there is no succession policy. Um, you know, just look at Putin. He's just had his botocks done. He's flying with cranes, fly fishing. This is not a man who's about to relinquish the throne. Um, he came back a year ago for a third presidential term, having basically cheated by spending four years as prime minister and having Dmitry Medvedev as his kind of seat warmer. Uh, he's now back. Uh, in, in his kind of world, um, he's indispensable. He's on a kind of historical mission. And constitutionally, he can do another four years um, and six more years after that. And uh, I think he, he really sees himself going on and on and on. So there is no succession strategy. If a, a real successor were to come in, they would immediately jail Putin and his team and strip them of their assets. So the logic is he has to carry on. And in terms of institutions, I mean, this is just kind of andy-pandy. I mean, you, you, have, you have a sham parliament, you have sham political parties, you have sham elections. It, it's a pretend world. Uh, it's not a real world. And I think, you know, Russians see through that. And, and um, uh, separation of powers, I mean, there's, there's one executive power and that's it. I want to make sure other question. You're probably going to want to come back on that, but I just want to um, put this other second question we heard there about the, and we haven't done much on it. Good for Russia internationally. Putin, like him or hate him, has some people say restored uh, Russia's uh, clout on the world stage. Uh, it is a player that has to be reckoned with, Masa. Well, um, yeah, Putin has failed in, in his 13 years in office to forming a coherent foreign policy. His foreign policy is uh, created for domestic consumption. And it's very primitive. It's a policy of being scary. Uh, respect and fear are 
equal in Putin's mind and uh, to his mind, as long as Russia is feared on the world stage, it is respected. Uh, he's demonstrated that very clearly and I think it's sort of culminated with Syria um, and I think we're watching the, the results of that policy. But you, you might not that. like that, but if it's feared, the question before us is, is it good for Russia? So we might not like that, but is being Russia being feared again good for Russia? I don't think that being feared is good for Russia. What are what are tangible benefits that Russia gets out of being feared? It's a, it's 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 symbolic capital of, of extremely questionable nature, but it certainly brings no uh, apparent benefit. All right, and and finally to you, um, Boris Jordan, that question there, very specific about the uh, evidence, the allegation that some of these uh, uh, incidents that occurred in the end of uh, the 20th century in Moscow were perhaps put up jobs by the FSB and obviously everyone knows Putin's own background in intelligence. Uh, what, what do you say on that claim that he actually engineered the excuse to go into Chechenia uh, and, and some of the larger points we've been hearing about? Well, I'd, I'd like to, in terms of order, to start from the earlier ones. I think I, I want to just put everyone's attention between the difference of our arguments and our opponents' arguments. Our opponents come up with stories, um, but there's no facts. It's all circumstantial. The fact is, Russia has institutions for re-elections. Russia's presidential elections have been free, and Putin did win with a large majority. I was personally in one of the polling offices that was doing the uh, the early uh, um, uh, uh, what are they called? The early releases, and I can tell you that he was winning with a. It's, he started out coming out from the Siberian at, at a sixty-five to seventy percent level, and then when it came to Moscow, he did drop dramatically. Um, uh, in the in the levels, but he was well over fifty percent uh, on a, on a polling basis, and the the fact is that Putin has consistently since nineteen um, two, since two thousand one polled at, at an average of forty three percent. So I do think he's he, there is a fair system. And by the way, obviously Russia's democratic institutions are young, and I think we all need to understand that in the scope of history, and this gets to the second point that the mission, Putin's global international mission, has been very similar to his domestic mission. And that is, it, it's economic. It's purely economic. And, and maybe that's a shortcoming, but his focus everywhere has been economic. Okay. And that is to build up the, 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 um, the, the economy for the Russian Federation and to build the foundation of a better life for Russian citizens. That's been his main focus. Thank you. Lots and lots of hands are up. So I want to get, try and get as many as I can in. Let's hear from you up here and then we'll bring it down to the gentleman here. Nope. We've, we have your hand up. Yeah. No, no, I, no, 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 I, no uh, he didn't respond to the judgment question. No, it's well, quite true. Honest, I can't respond to the judgment question because I'm not an expert on the subject. Very and I don't believe anyone in this room is an expert. You had to be there to know. Masha, very quickly on that. And then I really want to hear from people here. Yeah. Well, there's overwhelming evidence that those explosions that, uh, that brought Putin his incredible popularity early on were organized by the security services. And one of the pieces of evidence is that it was Where never properly facts? investigated. Where are the facts? I have the facts, no, Boris. You if you're interested, read my book. Yes, evidence I do. conjecture. Very difficult for her to pre present all that evidence in this kind of format. Let's hear from you. Yes. Hi. I'm yeah. up here. Um, I'm not sure how serious or not serious this point is, but if you judge someone from the friends that he has, and I am Italian living in London, I think you see where I'm going, right? Putin is the best buddy of Berlusconi. I just leave it at that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, and I add so my... You've got the microphone. Hold on, I want to go to the... I'm going to come back to you. I want to go to the person who's got the microphone who's here. 
And did you have it? Do you have it with you? No, it's here with you first. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is the what is Putin's personal and family wealth, and what is its source? Okay. I think I think we're all going to want to. What is its source? Back up there. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is, why do you think everybody gives Putin such a hard time? We look at Russia is a emerging economy and a nascent democracy, and there's a few others around the world. There's India, there's China, there's places worse than that, there's Pakistan. And yet if you read about these countries in the press, none of the leaders of none of these countries is, is, uh, is so controversial as is Putin. And sometimes I wonder it's, whether it's really a kind of reverse racism, uh, that we'd like to racism. treat him like the... That and, the president and is the racism anti-Sorry, is there is the racism you're imagining anti-Russian or anti-Putin in some way? It's uh, it's both, I guess. Okay, thank you. Let's um, make microphone here, lady here. Yep. Have you got the? Oh, sorry, I can't see who's got. Oh, you, and then it will get, We'll take about the woman there. Yeah. Um, I feel slightly we're being misled by um, the question, and maybe we're not answering it correctly. The question is: Has Putin been good for Russia? Yeah not whether we consider his um, despotic regime to be something that we in the West consider to be good, nor the corruption or anything else. Yeah. And I think we have to confine ourselves to the question rather than our views. And, and you know, Luke's stories are all very amusing and also terrifying, but they don't actually relate to the question. Good. Oh, I, I did sort of make that point uh, for Masha earlier. Um, thank you. Let's... It's hard. I'm doing this, by the way, because I can't see you as well as you can see all of us. So that's why I'm occasionally doing that. It's not some fear of incoming fire. Um, let's, uh, if you've got the microphone, then let's go to you next. And I'm going to take two more and bring it back here. Yeah. It, it, it seems to me that what I understand from listening to all of the panelists is that um, you can almost definitely agree that economically things have gone well. But you can almost certainly also surely agree that uh, there's been a price paid in terms of political freedom. Um, is it worth that? And what do we see in terms of the future of Russia with the, the seeming destruction okay. of political freedom? Thank you. I, I, there was a woman who, in here who I was keen to include just to make sure we have a balance of men and women. And uh, can we pass the microphone back to her? There we go. Yeah. Hi. Thus far, we've heard a lot of um, apples for apples arguments uh, comparing 1990s Russia with early 2000s Russia. Um, I was just wondering if you think it's fair to compare a country in the early years of democracy straight out of decades of um, uh, a Soviet uh, uh, autocracy and, on the other hand, uh, a, a country which has had at least 10 years of democracy, building institutions, opening, call it democracy or not, should okay. thus the bar not be rather higher for Putin? Thank you. That's um, very clear. I've got that. I'm going to say this is going to be the last one in this round. Don't worry. I'm still going to try and get people in. You've been have your hand up for quite a long time. So this is going to be the last one in this round. With luck uh, and a fair wind, we should get some more in. Yeah. Uh, good evening. Uh, Mr Harding doubted that uh, Putin has democracy in mind, but there are historical precedents for dictators moving towards democracy. Uncontroversially, I could mention Napoleon III, for example, who in 1869, before the Franco-Prussian War finished off his regime, did introduce the régime parlementaire. Yeah. So um, surely there are historical precedents for dictators becoming Democrats. Listen, if we've had Stanley Baldwin, we can have Napoleon III. I'm, I'm open... <laughs> I'm open 
end to all analogies here. Um, Marsha, you want to get in very quickly. Just I, I want to make sure that you do uh, address the question there, from, which said you've given us good answers why we might not like Vladimir Putin and his style, but maybe he is good for Russia. And I'd like you to address that. Well, as a Russian, I would like to say that it is not pleasant, happy, or most importantly, hopeful to live in a country where power is based on fear. Okay, it's um, very concise. But, um, I want to put to you, um, Christopher Granville, this point, very, very, very specific question. What is, estimate please for us, Putin's wealth? And perhaps much more importantly, what is its source? Anyone who says they know is bluffing. It's all conjecture, just as anyone who says they know what happened about the apartment block bombings in 1999 is bluffing. Uh, we could go on like this forever. It is futile. Uh, the other reason for the second Chechen, Chechnya war, by the way, in 1999, was an invasion of Dagestan by jihadi forces under Shamil Basayev, uh, which, why had jihadism uh, rooted in the North Caucasus? Because, unfortunately, Boris Yeltsin took the disastrous decision to go for a military solution in Chechnya in uh, December 1994. That's the reason. Uh, so, uh, don't know is the answer. And uh, the, uh, but if you want my opinion, I'll lay my cards out. Now, I regard myself not as uh, a rosy-eyed, uh, naive, uh, what Lenin called useful idiot, uh, but as a boring middle-of-the-road man. On the spectrum of the natural resource curse, uh, there is the Democratic Congo, the Republic of Congo at one extreme, where everything is looted for the benefit of the rulers. The other extreme is Norway, where these uh, resources are husbanded for the benefit of countless future generations of Norwegians. Uh, Russia is boringly in the middle of this spectrum. It shows undoubted symptoms of the natural resource curse, but also uh, a ruling establishment that, for all its faults, uh, is, has a sense of the country, uh, a sense of, uh, of ambition and pride, uh, and uh, trying to move things forward according to their lights, which, from our sophisticated, comfortable, complacent Blairite point of view, uh, is perhaps... Uh, 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 leaves a lot to be desired, but uh, does offer a path forward, and that is the basis, not namby-pamby, as Luke was saying. That is the realistic <clears throat> basis for voting in favour of this motion. I'm going to take your reference to Tony Blair as an answer to the question about Berlusconi, so we'll, 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 we'll now consider that addressed. No, 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 no I, I, I want to get Luke Harding now in, uh, because you wanted to get in on that, uh, but I think you should also address this question that your personal story, very affecting it was too to hear it, but in a way, bad for you, is it necessarily bad for Russia? Yeah, I mean, on the money, I mean, Christopher's right, and so far as we don't know, I, in 2007, I did a story uh, based on sources inside uh, Putin's own presidential administration, which who was saying uh, that he was worth about $40 billion, um, held basically... Um, through a series of proxies um, in oil and gas companies in Russia. Um, and I did, you know, b before writing the story, before we published this story, I, I did what you would do, which is I talked to Transparency International, I talked to other sources, and then with some trepidation, I phoned up the Kremlin and tried to ask them how much is Putin worth. I phoned 16 times, I sent 20 emails, there was no reply. Even no one actually wanted to talk about the story for kind of three months uh, afterwards, when Putin kind of finally sort of denied it, but um, the, the fact is that that actually, 
I don't see it as Christopher's curve. I mean, this is one of the greatest corruption stories in human history, not because Russia has discovered corruption, but because the volumes are so great um, in terms of Russia being the biggest exporter of oil and gas. Putin and his team are worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, and they're not sort of self-interested, so they're not selfless custodians of, of, of the Russian national interest. They are kleptocrats who have enriched themselves massively. Um, and as far as my stories go, well... Um, that's your view. I mean, the reason I think it's worth sharing them with you is because I think it, it speaks to something uh, more profound, which is that I think Putin's biggest failure in a way is intellectual, that he hasn't come up with a new national idea. I mean, he's still using the old KGB handbook. He's wheeling out tactics we, which were used at the height of the Cold War during the Brezhnev and Andropov eras. And I think this is the problem. This is why Christopher struggles to answer the question as to where Russia is going, because there is no vision. Uh, <clears throat> at the moment, it's going into a dead end. Um, I know that uh, you, Boris Jordan, want to come back on that. I also want to hear w what your answer is to the question of why you think people do give Putin such a hard time if he's uh, as great as the picture you painted before. And perhaps... Um, uh, but you also want to address this other point. Well, regarding that, there was a great question about whether the, the economic success of what he's done was worth it in terms of the, the, the politics. And I'd like to say, you know, there's a great reference. I was recently um, both read but also saw the recent um, great uh, uh, picture about um, uh, a great American Democrat, probably revered more than any, um, President Lincoln. And I'd like to ask the question, the audience a question, was it worth that Lincoln bought the vote to free the slaves? Was it worth it? I so, think it was. So what but he the, bought the vote. The point, being, that, that the analogy, point being <clears throat> that we are in a young democracy, the one which foundations are being built. I thought well, another question by a young lady in the back. This democracy is literally, you know, 15 years old. Um, it is what's most important after a thousand years of totalitarianism, and my family suffered in that totalitarianism tremendously under the communists um, who butchered and slaughtered my family. I can tell you that after that thousand years of totalitarian rule, coming out, the first thing the average Russian really cares about is his security and his ability to create a life for his family. And that was the issue that everyone worried about in, from 1992 to 1999 as the country was falling apart and going into hyperinflation and defaulting on its debt. Today, that isn't the case. As a matter of fact, a recent very interesting poll was, would you go out in Moscow with 1,000 respondents, where, which we did through one of the agencies, one through one of the independent agencies, was would you go out to uh, to uh, um, a, 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 um, a demonstration against Putin today? And 2% said yes. Then we said, would you go out for a demonstration for Putin? And 2% said yes. People don't really care about that today. What they care about is building their economic well-being. Okay, <clears throat> there were, I know there were questions you asked that we haven't yet ma managed to get to. We're really short on time. What I'm going to do is take an absolute whistle-stop round now, and then we're going to hear closing remarks from people here. So, gentlemen there, if we can bring the microphone to the uh, lady there. And then, uh, are there people upstairs? There's somebody upstairs, and I'll take one from over there. So sorry we haven't got more time. Yeah. 
uh, wherever sure. you are. Yeah. Yes. Um, thanks very much. Um, there are suggestions now. I don't think anyone's really suggesting things are as bad as they were in the Soviet Union when I lived there as a, a student and later worked there as a journalist. But it's a bit baffling to me to hear the suggestion that it is either freer than ever, which was one suggestion, or there's no information on the problems that are there. It's interesting to hear from those who are in favour of the motion that Putin has been good for Russia, what your view is on, in that case, the number of new laws to be introduced having a very serious effect on non-governmental organisations civil society more generally, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, yeah. Russian organisations, and specifically Galos, the voice working on independent monitoring okay. elections. They are being pressured, they're being fined, they're in danger. Thank you. Thank we've you. Got, we've, we got the point. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Hello, yeah. hello. Is that working? Yeah. Yeah, I want to just say that um, Mr Harding said that a diplomats wouldn't recognise the Russia described by um, Boris Johnson, but I was a, a US diplomat there throughout the 90s up to 2003, and I, I, rec I agree with everything, he, every point he made. And ex I would add one point that the branches of... Every point who made? Sorry, you agree Boris with it? Jordan. You agree with this? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the only point I would add was that even the branches of government were fighting each other, right? The White House getting bombed by the, by the executive branch. So, um, th that would be one point, just to set the record. But I wanted to say that, of course, now there are terrible problems with, with press. And the programs I administered in the uh, embassy are now being sort of shut down and inhibited. But I still think we can, and I'm glad we have the pre-op picture of Putin because I think his, his yeah, Botox on. days are worse for Russia. And I, but I still think we can say yes to the proposition because he has been good. There was a period he was an essential guy. Maybe Thomas Jefferson would be better, but he was damn good. So that's what I'm saying. Thank you. Okay, the argument that Putin was necessary uh, for where the country was. Um, I said I would take two... Um, oh, we've got somebody up here, is that right? Yeah. And then we're going to take one from over there, yeah. Uh, so Boris used the argument that Russia has only... Uh, 20 years of uh, democracy after the Soviet era, and therefore a lot can be forgiven. Uh, why are countries like Estonia, with exactly the same uh, duration of democracy, are doing so much better in the sort of public liberty sense? Thank you. Um, point of comparison. This is going to have to be the last one. I'm so sorry. And I'm going to go to the... Not, not there, but the person who's in the front of this block, just behind this one. There. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry to others I didn't have time for. Yeah. I'd like a question, but I have a remark for Boris Jordan. Uh, Should really be a question yes, if you can. Uh, uh, Boris Jordan um, um, said uh, uh, a very maybe laughable speech about uh, democracy in Russia, if, it's, if it was so sad. Uh, and about democracy, you could tell uh, for the families of political prisoners in Russia who are sitting now uh, in prisons, and uh, everybody knows this. There is no independent court in Russia. There is no independent mass media. People persecuted by their political views. Okay. <clears throat> I escaped from Russia and was granted political asylum because I didn't want to sit in a prison for my political views and tell about democracy all the people uh, who are fighting for freedoms and rights in Russia. Thank you. I'm so sorry to... Thank you. Um, Apologies again to those of you who wanted to get in, but there, we are out of time. In fact, we're slightly running over. Now is the point where I'm going to ask you to vote um, on what you've heard. And while you're doing that, tellers will be coming round with the ballot boxes. Uh, remember the form. Uh, you have the form there that says yes, no, and there it is. Uh, for and against, it says. So if you are for the motion, you believe that Putin has been good for Russia, tear off the black portion there with the word for and put it in the ballot box. And if you are against, put in the motion saying, the word uh, against. And if you, shh, because we're still going to hear four more. We're going to hear respond from our panel. If you're against, put in the little white slip that says against. And if you still don't know or you want to abstain, 
put the whole thing inside. While you're doing that, and I would urge you to be as quiet as you can because we're going to give a final chance to our panel to sway you, if you haven't yet voted, uh, with closing arguments. And if you can address, uh, as you do so, panel, some of the points you heard there about the, the argument the country isn't freer than ever, the attacks on NGOs, the gentleman who said he escaped from Russia, or perhaps alternatively, the US diplomat who said she was there in the 90s and she absolutely recognises the transformation of the... Uh, Putin was necessary. If you can address those two, that would be good. Closing argument from you. You have two, two to three minutes. First off, Luke Harding. And, and quiet, please, if we can, for these closing remarks. Um, well, thank you. Uh, I'll just pick up on a, a couple of quick points. The US diplomat, I, I think you're talking about early Putin rather than late Putin. I wonder if Mike McFall, the current US ambassador who's been hounded, persecuted, harassed, um, intimidated, uh, would would agree with that, that Putin has been so good, or, or perhaps the US diplomat recently caught with a wig in, in what was clearly a, a kind of rather ridiculous sort of setup. Um, American diplomats have, have been on the receiving end of a lot of nastiness, I would say, from about 2006, almost after you left. Um, just to close, political prisoners, there are some people we didn't mention today. Anna Polakovskaya, shot dead in 2006 in the stairwell of her apartment. Natalia Estemirova, abducted in Grozny um, from where she was working for the human rights organization Memorial and murdered by the side of the road. Mikhail Baketov, uh, a local journalist in Kimki who um, wrote about corruption, tried to preserve the forest there, and who was savagely beaten uh, and died two months ago. Uh, the list goes on and on. You know, brave reporters, these are Russians, human rights workers, journalists, uh, campaigners, often not in Moscow or St. Petersburg, but in the provinces. These are the people who've been good for Russia, not the kleptocrats, not the people who've made money from Russia, large amounts of money, but people who've stood up um, for what they believe in, um, who've, who've kept alive the kind of the kind of moral self, if you like, in, in increasingly difficult circumstances. And I, I have a, an idea, perhaps a quick, quixotic idea, maybe, maybe a, a ridiculous idea, that at some point... Maybe as an old man on my Zimmer frame, I will be, get, be able to go back to a genuinely democratic Russia. Uh, e even semi-democratic would be fine. And, and walk down a street named after Estemirova, named after Politkovska, named after, after Beketov. And I, I, I vote for you to oppose that motion and perhaps make this dream a little bit closer to reality. Thank you. Luke, um, in, in your list there, I, I wonder where you place Khodorkovsky, who we heard attacked by Boris Jordan, who said, you know, in any other country, he should be in jail, you know, forever. Um, and other people do list him as, as a sort of political prisoner. Where, where do you stand on that? I, I mean, I, I, think, I think, you know, he's, he's a, a tricky figure, but I also think he's essentially kind of redeemed himself in jail. And I'd just like to say, um, he may well have stolen large amounts of money in the 1990s, but that's not why he's in prison. He's in prison for disrespecting Vladimir Putin, who's a very touchy guy. Um, and, you know, if anyone, if, if everyone who'd stole money in the 1990s were in prison, then the entire oligarchic class would be in jail, not just Kudakovsky. All right, thank you. For, for his closing remarks, we turn now to Boris Jordan. You've heard all the arguments made. What particularly addressed would you that first question in that last round about the attacks on non-governmental organisations, NGOs, the questioner listed them by way of rebutting your argument that Russia was freer than ever? Well, I think, firstly, I'd like to say that it is obvious, and I said it before, that um, Russia is at a very early stage of its democratic roots and its development. And again, I want to reiterate, for those that are um, history buffs as I am on Russian history, we have come out of 1,000 years of totalitarian rule. 
And I can tell you the Russia we have today is so much better than anything that we had in the last, certainly the last 80 years under communist rule, and certainly better than what we had in the 1990s. And the Russian people vote that way every single four years. And there has been no one that has been able to come up and to argue the point against, mainly because there isn't enough support for anyone because people live well. And as we say in the United States, people vote their pockets. And in that regard, Putin has done a very good job of, of making sure that the population has done better annually every year. Now, regarding the issues of, of, of that were brought up, first of all, the issue on Estonia. Um, as I understand, let's be honest, um, Russians don't limit anybody from voting. The Estonians don't let Russians vote. So um, let's not talk about countries that are free or not free. Um, uh, Russia in that you regard allows Russians anyone. Live in Estonia, Russians who live in Estonia. Yeah. Right, so, and have, have regularly and constantly held back the ability to get citizenship and virtually disallow any citizenship in their country of Russian citizens. That's massive repression as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and that, that is a country that's supposedly applying or already is in the EU. Um, so um, I'd like to say that in, 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 in closing arguments that there's no question a lot of work needs to be done. The question that was put today to all of you was, has been Putin been good for Russia? And my argument is that up until today, and we will see how it goes forward, he has been good for Russia. And the Russians, who are more relevant than all of us here, are the people th that have been voting yes on that issue. And when, when you cited that poll... You cited that poll earlier when you asked people, when people were asked, you know, would you go out and protest against Putin? How confident are you that the figures there don't aren't partly influenced by fear of saying, yes, I would like to go and protest against Putin? No, listen, you, today, you know, we had, in, in May, we had a demonstration that was, you know, 20 some odd thousand people came out. The fact is, today, whether that's good or bad, but the fact is the opposition to Putin rule today is less than 20% of any kind of dissent, and mostly it comes out of Moscow and St. Petersburg. The rest of the country is hugely supportive of what Putin has done. And that comes through in every single poll, including the poll that was misquoted by The Guardian. It wasn't 26% that support Putin. It was actually 63% that support Putin. And that comes across, whether you're an independent or a so-called not independent polling, that comes across in every single poll it's What I'm taken. saying is how confident can you be that people are honest to pollsters about what they really feel? Is there not a climate of fear the, the, that might influence the, their... The, the pollster, the pollster, let me tell you, the pollster that I largely depend on is an individual who has been doing this for 20 years, and he's the one that actually came up with okay. one of the first polls in 1996 that said that Yeltsin was running at a 3% success ratio. And okay. it's former. And Alexander Sloan is an incredibly independent pollster. Everyone who knows him, he's an academic and knows that that's the way he functions. And he does a lot of work for our company, okay. for other companies. Thanks. He does a good job. Thank you. M Marsha Gesson, you, your closing remarks, and one of the questions I would like you to address, it was the former US diplomat there who said, uh, you know, it was, you, it was awful 20 years ago, branches of government fighting each other. He may not be Thomas Jefferson, but he's been necessary for Russia. Well, actually, um, what, I would, what I would like to say is, first of all, that uh, the, the distinction between early Putin and late Putin is a completely false distinction. Putin, on his first day in office, two things happened. This was his first day after he was inaugurated. He proposed a legislative package that laid out the blueprint for dismantling the Russian electoral system. Uh, and he followed through on that blueprint quite consistently. 
completing the process of dismantling the electoral system by 2004, when gubernatorial elections were eliminated and uh, direct elections to the Duma were eliminated. The other thing that happened on his first day in office was the raid on the offices of Media Most, the uh, largest uh, independent media company uh, in Russia, which then Boris Jordan was used to, uh, to, to, to run on behalf of the state company Gazprom. Uh, now, uh, Boris Jordan has accused me of not using facts. Well, I would like to accuse him of misrepresenting facts. Uh, one of the misrepresentations that you've heard is that uh, Russia is in the early stages of democracy. That makes it sound as though Russia has been on a smooth or at least a consistent trajectory for the last 20 years. Well, that is a key distinction. Russia was on, a, on, a, on a, one trajectory until 2000 when Putin came to power and has been a completely different trajectory for the last 13 years. Uh, the process of dismantling what democracy there was in the 90s has intensified in the last year. And that's how, uh, responding to the question over there, uh, that's how we know that Putin doesn't have democracy in mind. Because we look at the trend, we look at the direction in which he's taking Russia. Uh, the laws that have been passed in the last year, which severely restrict uh, uh, the freedom to, to gather publicly, and that accounts in large uh, part, of course, for why people are not willing to come out to protest, aside from feeling that that's completely hopeless. But um, the, the, law, the new laws have made it possible to prosecute anybody for anything related to public gatherings. They have also instituted backbreaking fines up to uh, nearly $1,000 for an individual for uh, violating random laws on public gatherings. The laws on so-called foreign agents, which are geared at eliminating civil society in Russia. And mark my word, by the end of this year, there will be no civil society organizations left in Russia. Uh, the new laws that make it possible to prosecute virtually anybody for uh, espionage or high treason. And finally, one more thing, uh, the 63% figure. Uh, that figure uh, pr uh, uh, that came from the Levada Center, which is an independent uh, polling organization, is not a popularity figure. The 63% was a very accurate prediction of the voting results. Now, Levada has been very clear on this, that they do not release raw numbers. They release the uh, raw numbers corrected by a coefficient to predict the results that the regime will claim to have uh, received in voting, which is exactly what happened. They claim to get 63%. All right. Um, we gave him the first word. He's also going to get the last word uh, to sum up uh, Christopher Granville. And what I, the question I'd like to, you to address, if you could, was the uh, gentleman there who said, told us he had escaped from Russia in order to escape jail uh, for his political beliefs. He said, when you had said earlier that the country is freer than ever before, he said, tell that to the families of the political <laughs> prisoners. So I'd like you to address him, if you would, yeah. as you make your closing remarks. Well, thank you, Jonathan, with pleasure. And with your permission, I, I'd link that question to, I thought, the spot-on question which came from the front row, the gentleman uh, sitting just uh, down there, on the, has the price that has been paid for the recovery of living standards and the reduction of poverty, the sense of stability and confidence in the future, has that been too high? Uh, now, uh, it's always nice to think that one doesn't have to pay uh, such a high price, that one could have got the desirable thing for less. It's a nice thought to have. It's nice to vote against this motion, perhaps, on those grounds. But ask yourself honestly, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is it realistic? When I said that Russia was freer than before, I'm thinking of the 1990s. Uh, the re-election of Boris Yeltsin in 1996 was certainly rigged. 
the country was run by oligarchs. Uh, there was, the press was not free. Uh, we haven't got less free. There was unbelievable plunder. Uh, so for all the ugliness we see today, uh, has it got worse than the 1990s? It was an excellent, uh, excellent question for me, I thought, up from the balcony there, about Estonia. I'm, you heard I'm keen on counterfactuals. So if Estonia is okay, why not Russia? Bad example, I'm afraid. Uh, Estonia only had a uh, one generation under Soviet communism. Before that, it was a free country. Here's a counterfactual for you. Ukraine. Ah, looks more democratic, doesn't it? But not even back to its Soviet level, the standard of living. Hugely inferior demographic and health indicators, uh, despite its democracy. Uh, so there, I think, gives you food for thought about what is really possible uh, what price is acceptable? Uh, and on the last point about uh, NGOs, well, what uh, Masha just said is, is rubbish, and it's an insult that there will be no NGOs left in Russia. There's a huge and growing civil society movement of charitable organizations which are very active in protesting against authorities in all sorts of ways. Uh, Golos was mentioned. This is an NGO which looks at uh, fair voting. Uh, now, there is this rule that if you take foreign money as an NGO to be a politically active NGO domestically, you have to register yourself as a foreign agent. You don't get closed down. You only get closed down if you don't obey the law. Now, of course, this is a little bit paranoid, but Russia has to sort out its own shit. Forgive me the, the, the rude word. It has to develop its democracy from within. If it's grafted on by the OSCE, the National Democratic Foundation, Council of Europe, God knows what, it will be rejected, even if democracy hadn't been discredited in the 1990s by being associated with loot, rapine, and uh, oligarchy. So really, uh, has it, this been good for Russia? Is there a way forward out of this, unlike the Soviet Union? There most certainly is. And that is why I'm sure you have supported this motion. It's too late for me to, to change your minds now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you very much. Since the subject of the next Intelligence Squared event is to be Neville Chamberlain, I'm glad to be able to tell you I have here a piece of paper uh, <laughs> in my hand. And uh, let's just tell you now the debate results. Before you came in, before you had a chance to hear these sterling and sparkling arguments, 21% of you agreed with the motion that Putin has been good for Russia, 40% of you disagreed, and 39% were don't knows. I can now tell you that... Having debated the motion, 37% are for the motion that Putin has been good for Russia, so a big increase from 21 to 37%. But now against the motion was 40% before. Now 57% of you believe that Putin has not been good for Russia. <clears throat> and only 6% of you uh, would don't know. So an almost Putin-esque uh, victory margin of 57%. <laughs> for our people against the motion. It only remains for me to wish you obviously a good evening, but to thank our sterling speakers up here, Christopher Granville, Boris Jordan, Masha Gessen and Luke Hardy. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.